Hey everyone, my name is Nathan Forster, and I'm asking the big questions of authors and activists, scholars and survivors, poets and priests, therapists and theologians, and basically everyone in between. This will be a resource for people who, deep in their bones, think that surely God's kingdom is deeper and wider than the box we've sometimes put it in. And so what better way to discover this than by learning people's stories and their specialities, in order that we deepen and widen our perspective on faith, community, society, and life. So journey with me as we go deeper and wider. In this week's episode, we speak with Professor Ellen Davis on how Scripture speaks of the connection between our relationship with God and our relationship with the land, and the implications this has for us today, especially in light of our current ecological crisis. I know for a lot of my listeners, we take Scripture very seriously, which is why this interview is with Professor Ellen Davis, because Professor Ellen Davis is Amos Reagan Kearns Professor of Bible and Practical Theology at Duke Divinity School. She's the author of 11 books and many articles, and her books include Scripture, Culture and Agriculture, an Agrarian Reading of the Bible, Biblical Prophecy, Perspectives for Christian Theology, Discipleship and Ministry, and Wondrous Depth, Old Testament Preaching. So, here is this week's interview with Professor Ellen Davis. To start with, tell our listeners about your early encounters with Christian faith. I'm a cradle Anglican, so um, I grew up in the American Episcopal Church. Um, And I suppose I am a a sort of naturally religious person. Um, I, um, some of my earliest memories, probably my earliest clear memories of being in the sanctuary of my church, Mm -hmm. um, from childhood, I always hated Sunday school. Uh, I found it boring, um, but I loved being in church, um, and, There's never been a time in my life where the Christian account of reality did not make sense to me. Mm. Uh, As one of my teachers once said, no one would choose the Christian narrative first time out. It's just sort of what um, the only reason to choose it is because it makes sense of all the facts. Mm. Um, I didn't choose it, as I say, it was, it was given to me. Mm. Um, and, and yet I have found as the years and decades have gone by bringing their own challenges, um, of various kinds, intellectual, emotional, spiritual, I've, I've always found that the Christian account of reality um, accommodates mm. circumstance. Mm. Now, in today's episode, I want to draw particular focus on our understanding of the connection between our faith and our relationship to the land. So, what led you to become interested in this particular topic? My conscious awareness of this as a topic with which I needed to be engaged as first as a teacher, Mm. then I realized that it would eventually be something I would need to engage as a scholar. Um, That goes back about 30 years probably. Um, And I had, I was, about 40 at the time, and uh, I had visited my family 
in Northern California, the wine country, 50 or 60 miles north of San Francisco. Um, and a friend had driven me to a region I hadn't been to actually since I was a child. Um, and I saw a highway running across in front of a farmhouse that I remembered from very long ago. And it made a very strong um, impression upon me. And it became sort of a visual symbol of how much a way of life that we had um, taken for granted in a sense that had existed time out of mind, um, an agrarian way of life um, based mm. on um, on farming. That way of life was eroding in my lifetime mm. uh, in ways that I could actually see. Um, and coincident with that, I was... I was traveling to Israel with some reasonable frequency. And I first went to Israel when I was 18. So at that time, I'd known Israel for something over 20 years mm -hmm. um, and realized that that landscape was also changing <clears throat> drastically in my lifetime. California and Israel have rather similar landscapes, Um <clears throat> And, and they're fragile landscapes. Mm. And so to see the two places that I knew best changing within the relatively short span of my life at that time, 40 years, mm. um, but of course that's a period with a lot of biblical resonance, um, I realized that this trajectory is not sustainable. Mm -hmm. I knew something, as a, as a biblical scholar, I knew something about what has happened in, in the land of Israel, the Levant, over four millennia. And when I put those to keep life sustainable in that region, and when I set those four millennia next to my four decades and thought about the change in both places, I realized we don't have four millennia to go wow. on this yeah. track. Mm. So I started teaching. Mm. Uh, and what are we, and what aren't we talking about as well when we talk about the connection between our faith and our relationship to the land? We're talking about the material base of life, mm. of human life and the life of all creatures. So as Psalm 36 puts it, uh, the psalmist speaking to God, with you is the fountain of life. And what that psalm is talking about is the life of, of all creatures, both human and non-human. One of the lines in that psalm is, human and beast, mm. you save, O oh Lord, save. Um, and so God is concerned with the salvation of human and non-human creatures in a way that that psalm does not distinguish between them in terms of the value God ascribes to them. Other parts of the Bible mm. do, perhaps, but... Uh, but no part of the Bible severs the connection uh, between humans and non-human creatures or ascribes value only to humans and not to non-human life. Mm. Um, that's what we are talking about in connecting faith and a relationship to land. And that's really good to hear it from that perspective as well, that they're isn't this hard distinction. Often people have turned to Genesis and they've used words like, oh, bet we're meant to have dominion and things like that. But I imagine that would be a, a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to go after creation and have this relationship with our land. 
First of all, Genesis has more than one perspective on this, mm, and I think yes. that's important to bear in mind. Um, we have um, we have a sort of composite creation account which represents different perspectives in the first couple of chapters of the Bible, um, and I th- I think that the creation account altogether is. Um, sensitive to the relationship between Mm. human and non-human creatures, but with somewhat different emphases. Um, The word dominion is sort of mostly Christian, to some extent Jewish, but mostly Christian shorthand for a phrase that appears in Genesis 1 uh, more than once. Um, which I translate, this is the the blessing for the human beings uh, that they may exercise skilled mastery mm. with uh, re- with respect to the other creatures. Mm. Uh, I think skilled ma- exercising skilled mastery with respect to or among. Um, The Hebrew preposition does not mean over. Um, I think that notion of exercising skilled mastery Mm. is useful, um, and it reflects the perspective of Genesis 1, which I think would be described in modern ecological terms as a special species perspective. Mm. Um, The humans are the only creature... um, formed in the image of God. Uh, It's an emphasis of that first chapter. Uh, And when we use a term in English such as skilled mastery, we're talking about a craft. We're talking about a responsibility. Um, But anyone who practices a craft knows that if you're going to do it well, you need to do it with humility Mm. And um, and uh, you are not wielding you are not wielding power in an arbitrary way. Mm. Um, you are being sensitive to the materials, the relations that enable you to be a master of the craft. Mm. Uh, uh, and in this case, it is the craft of um, living with uh, other creatures, as farmers and herds people do, mm. um, which would constitute a, you know, maybe ninety-eight percent conservative estimate of the Israelite population in the biblical period. Um, and um, as we can see from any number of places in the Bible, mm. including the Sabbath legislation, Israelites were very sensitive to the responsibility of living with their animals. Mm. Uh, and they're also sensitive to the fact that the in addition to the domestic animals with with which they literally share a domicile. Mm. Um, Israelites didn't have barns um, removed from the house. They had an area of the house where the animals lived. Um, And so everyone was literally in it together. Mm. Um, That creates a very different consciousness than we have when we buy our meat at the butcher shop or the grocery store. Um, and but Israelites were also sensitive to the whole realm of wild beasts, mm. uh, and they respected that, um, and had some um, quite reasonable fear of the wild beasts. They certainly mm. did not think that they were in charge of them. Um, so I. Th- think that a modern notion of dominion, as we sometimes call it, 
um, which by which we normally mean complete domination um, or industrialization, commodification mm. of uh, of animal life and of other creaturely life, including the fields. That notion of what it is to be created in the image of God and the responsibility that derives from that would have been unthinkable mm. to Israelite. It sounds like there certainly is a, as you said, a humility and perhaps a gentleness in terms of what it means to be human according to the Genesis account of looking after the land then. And and the word, the word humility, mm. of course, is connected to humus soil. Um, it is a sort of lowly disposition. And um, that connection between human and human, humus mm. um, is exactly reflected in the second chapter of Genesis when the human being, Adam, is formed from the fertile soil, Adama. Mm. So it's, it's a rare instance in which a Hebrew pun, Adam from Adama, comes over into English, human from humus. Mm. And in this conversation so far, you've drawn this particular focus on Genesis, and you've also mentioned passages from the Psalms which show that there isn't a distinction or a hard distinction between humans and other creatures do we have other specific instances in scripture where we see a connection between looking after the land and our response to god in many um in Mm. the hebrew bible the old testament which um is of course three quarters of the bible Mm. um it's Difficult to go more than a page or two without Mm. seeing some reference to land, water, animals um, in one way or another. Because this was the world Mm. from which the Bible came. Um, Mm. and, um, And the Bible is in a certain sense, a worldly book. It is very Mm. much aware of the place um, where where human life is situated. Um, And so there are countless references to, Mm. uh, to land. One that is particularly powerful to me is in the book of Leviticus, a book that Christians don't uh, read very much. It's very important in Jewish thought um, and practice of faith. Um, But Christians have tended to bracket it. But there's a a line in, I think it's chapter 25, maybe verse 42, um, when um, God's is looking forward at this point in the narrative, Israel is still at Sinai, Mm. but God is looking forward to Israel entering into the land um, and their presence in the land will be characterized by uh, disobedience, sin. Um, And so God is also anticipating that at some point the, as Leviticus puts it, the land will vomit out the people. Mm, right, um, and land has agency in uh, mm. in Leviticus and many other parts of the Bible, including Genesis one. It's just not land is not inert; it mm. is a creature of God with capacity to respond to God's will, mm. um, and and God says, anticipating Israel being in exile. And then God says, but there will come a time when I will, and this is God's statement of reconciliation, Mm. there will come a time when I will remember um, my covenant 
with um, Jacob, mm. and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham I will remember, and the land I will remember. Mm. So if you if you notice that unusual order, my covenant with Jacob, with Isaac, with Abraham, it's, of course, reverse order. Mm. Um, normally, it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, so we're going back in time mm. from Jacob through Isaac to Abraham, the earlier ancestor, and the land I will remember the land in that line is, you might say, the earliest ancestor. Mm. We are Adam from Adama, human from humus. And what we also see in that line is that the land itself is a covenant partner. Mm. Mm, uh, wow. Because we're tracing the line of covenant. Wow. And I know some Australian Christians wanting to understand our relationship to the land, especially in light of the bushfires that occurred. I know some people that I know when there were rallies about taking care of the climate, of seeking climate justice, I was aware of some other Christian groups who saw this concern that Christians were having for the land as some sort of kind of left-wing agenda, so to speak, as I've heard it from some people. I imagine there is some pushback like this that perhaps you've heard or or perhaps there's been other pushback from others when it comes to taking seriously the need to see our relationship to land and to care for the land. What have been some issues or blockages you've seen with how people understand this topic? Um. In my own experience, and to my surprise, there have been fewer real blockages mm. than I expected. Um, I teach a, a, a students with a very wide range of ecclesial locations and theological um, dispositions. Mm. Um, and... So when I started teaching in this area, as I said earlier, something like 30 years ago, mm. um, I expected people, um, I expected incomprehension. Mm. Um, and, and I probably got more incomprehension than I got resistance. Uh, when I first started teaching in this area, I was teaching in uh, at Yale Divinity School in New Haven, Connecticut, which is a very um, urbanized and industrialized part of the United States and has been for a long time. So uh, initially, my students uh, would take classes that I would teach in what I called a biblical theology of land mm. or a biblical ecology. They would take them just because they were sort of interested in what I might be teaching. Um, but virtually no one knew enough to mm. think that the topic itself was <laughs> of interest. Um, and, um, and so initially... It was just um, at the most basic level an educational challenge of people with an entirely urbanized mindset learning to think about land uh, as something that bore directly upon their own lives. Mm. Uh, to be honest, it did not take very long um, to uh, persuade them of that because mm. after all, we all eat, um, mm -hmm. and yes. food food does not originate at the grocery store. Mm. Uh, but it was a it, but it was a mind shift, mm. uh, and as I continued teaching this area, I made a couple of relocations in my job, moving progressively further south along the eastern seaboard 
seaboard of the United States, first mm. to Virginia, then uh, to North Carolina, where I live now. Um, and what that meant was that I was moving progressively into regions of the country that were less deeply urbanized than the Northeast. Mm. And so I found that people got it mm. um, even more quickly. And, and what was especially valuable to me was that there would be amongst my students people who had grown up on farms or their grandparents had had a farm. Um, and so they were sensitive to things in the Bible mm. that I was not sensitive to because I have, I grew up as a very small child in San Francisco. Then we moved, uh, as the seagull flies, we moved about 10 miles out. Um, mm. And, um, but so, but I grew up in a sort of peri-urban area, you might say. It wasn't suburban. I grew up on an island, but um, mm. but it was in the vicinity of the city. Um, and so I don't come from a farming background. But as more and more of my students were able to find things in the text that they could see the significance I couldn't see, um, it... It was educational for me. So, and then I began making connections with um, colleagues, Norman Wurzler, Wendell Berry, Wes mm. Jackson, uh, people for whom farming is, um, is their life. Mm. And they then were able to further my education and tell me where I might not be understanding what the Bible was saying. And, and it was also encouraging to see them mm. um, read through my eyes, read the Bible in ways they had never encountered it, even if they had grown up in ch churches full of farmers. Mm. It, no one had drawn the connections for them, um, perhaps in part because they were taken for granted and perhaps because in my lifetime and their lifetime, the United States and and increasingly the world mm. have moved more and more in the direction of um, industrialized agriculture, mm. and and therefore a theological perspective that is utterly divorced from the land. And on that, in terms of what we are seeing in the 21st century, what would you say is our current relationship to the land? And how does our faith challenge this relationship? Um, I, I would say that our relationship, our fundamental relationship, never changes, mm -hmm. um, which is to say um, our life depends fully on the health and well-being of the land. And when I say land, I don't just mean, I don't just mean dirt, mm. um, uh, whatever that means. Um, I mean the communities of life that constitute soil, water, air, um, none of which is a simple substance, um, all of them filled with living things. Mm. Um, so that's what I mean by land, and I think that's what the psalmist in Psalm 36 means when, um, when the psalmist says, with you, God, is the fountain of life. Mm. So our basic relationship does not change it cannot change. It is built into mm. our biology, so to speak. Mm. Um, what can change and does is the health of that relationship. Mm. And at this point, I would say that physically, um, the, 
physically the earth is sick, mm. drastically ill, um, in large part because of our abuse, neglect, ignorance. Mm. Um, and so that's the bad news. Um, the good news is that uh, some of that damage is reversible. Um, as we are seeing, even in the very short term of COVID, um, mm. with healing in the ozone layer and um, dolphins coming into the Bosphorus. <laughs> mm. um, and um, new marine life in the Thames. I mean, things that who would have expected? Mm. Um, so, and I, I think that these are gifts and they are meant, um, I receive them as gifts from God that are meant to open our, our eyes and give us hope. Um, uh, and hope in a t- time when hope and direction are desperately needed, mm. as I certainly do not have to tell the people of Australia. Mm. Um, and and so that's part of the good news and I think another part of the good news is that more and more people are seeing the ruptures Mm. uh, in human relations with other creatures more and more people of faith are seeing those as the sins that they are, mm-hmm. um, and also secular people are seeing mm-hmm. these as um, uh, are seeing them, and are also even secular people are seeing that people of faith have to play a role in the healing of the biosphere. Um, and that has been very encouraging to me mm. to be um, when I speak, as I sometimes do, to secular audiences. And I'm a biblical scholar, so what can I do except um, share a biblical text, even if not assuming uh, that they will um, receive it as authoritative for their lives, but they may find it of interest. Mm. Um, and Thus far, my experience is that they never cease to be amazed Mm. at how much wisdom, whether they receive that as divine wisdom or not, is a separate question, but how much wisdom Mm. they see in Scripture with respect to the things that concern them most. Mm. Mm. And in terms of that wisdom, I guess one question I want to ask is, given what we are seeing in terms of our current health to the land, what are some things that we can actually do, perhaps as churches or even as individuals, communally? What can we actually do? What what can we learn from Scripture and do? Um, Since, as I've suggested, I think the greatest problem is within the church is ignorance Mm. and neglect of responsibility. Mm. I think the very first thing we need to do um, is, and this is the the thing the church does best, is teach and preach. Mm. Um, It's very encouraging to me that this week, beginning um, in a few hours, um the um uh the festival of homiletics which comes out of luther seminary in mm. minnesota is sponsoring a week long conference on preaching about climate change mm. and last i heard there was something like 10,000 people signed up to listen to this online um and this is a remarkable thing. Mm. If if 10,000 people wow. are willing to 
consider the possibility mm. of preaching about climate change. And these are people across the theological spectrum. Mm. Um, most, if not all of them, North Americans, but I think it would be a similar theological mm. spectrum to what one would see in Australia. Mm. Um, that, um, and I believe there are also some African speakers. Um, mm. If 10,000 people were willing to engage this topic in their churches, that could make be a game changer. Mm. Um, and as one of my seminary teachers says, if you were, if you're preaching well, then your teaching burden should be increasing. Mm. People mm. should be coming to you and saying, can we learn more about that? Mm. Um, and so at all levels in the church, engage in studying these issues together. Mm. I'm pulling back a little bit from the word teaching simply because many of us would say, well, I don't know enough to teach about this. Um, if I'd waited to know enough to teach about it, I would never have done anything. <laughs> um, you just need to start studying it mm. with mm. the people who have been given to you. Um, in my experience, the little children know that this is a problem. They're learning mm. about it at school. Yes, yes that's right. Mm. Um, so um, listen to the children. Mm. Um, uh, plant gardens. Um, my seminary has planted a small garden. My university has planted a uh, larger garden. Mm. I know um, several seminaries that, freestanding seminaries, uh, that have planted what one of them calls a farminary. Um, mm, I like that. And, um, and have places for instruction as well as growing food. Um, something that, partly because of my age, I'm increasingly sensitive to the fact that most clergy in North America seem to know nothing about green burials um, and responsible ways of um, honoring the dead and the earth at the same time. Mm. Um, and so for me, a very encouraging thing, as I have just revised my will, um, has been to learn what might be a good alternative to um, either vault burial or cremation, which is um, is itself fairly damaging. And I've re recently learned about aquamation and um, told my bishop about it. Mm. Um, and, uh, and several of my clergy friends who did not know that they who were very concerned about green alternatives, but did not really know any of them. Mm. Um, there are, of course, also churches that are um, establishing green burial grounds if they are in a rural location. Mm. Those are some things that come immediately to hand. Yeah, and I think one of the things you particularly drew upon as well was, as you said, that as we learn through our own faith tradition uh, what it means to look after this world and our relationship to this world, that out of that space we then do the things we need to do, acts of repentance, so to speak, but turning towards a better way of looking after our world. In terms of drawing upon our faith petition, I, I want to draw a particular focus to Jesus. And what can we say of Jesus' relationship to land? and perhaps even subsequently Jesus' dream for all of creation? The very first thing that comes to my mind is that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Mm. Um, and so um, 
And thinking of the Apostle Paul, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Mm. Um, So if we take these things seriously, then it moves us into a somewhat different, and I would say vastly expanded Mm. concept of what it is to be in Christ Mm. as the firstborn of all creation. Um, This is something that, it's interesting, I think that North Americans um, tend to have a very individualistic notion of um, their relationship with Jesus. Mm. Uh, So Jesus getting little me to heaven. Mm. Um, And I don't think that's uh, that's an understanding that has very deep roots in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, Agreed. (laughs) And um, a a lot of my teaching over the last couple of decades has been amongst East African Christians Mm. uh, who... uh, while they have been certainly exposed through uh, Western missionaries to that way of thinking, um, that is not a, that it's not very congruent mm. with the way in which the people have lived time out of mind. And so, when I have opened up a different way of thinking about our relationship with Jesus it instantly makes Mm. sense to them Mm. Um, in a way that a more individualistic approach never did really make a lot of sense. Um, So I think of one of my, um, one of my East African students, I, um, I was studying with a group of uh, senior clergy and teachers and we were looking at Genesis one and I drew their attention to the prevalence of the word seed, Mm. um, S-E-E-D, in Genesis 1. um, And Genesis 1 is very, very aware of the fact that the land of the Bible is a seed-rich area. This Mm. is why it's one of the cradles of agriculture Mm. uh, 12,000 years ago, because it's... Um, a land rich in the kinds of seeds that are nutritious for human and animal life, um, mm. domestic animal life. So I drew their attention to the the word seed, and I said, what does this make you think? And I remember one of the students said, um, in addition to their talking about what seeds meant to them, we, I was in southern South Sudan, um, and they talked about the loss of seed in the course of 50 years of civil war mm. and and, re, and seeds coming back um, now in a, not really a time of peace, but um, they were able to return to farming. And so they talked about literal seed sowing, but one mm. of them said, but Jesus is the seed of the new creation. Um, and I thought that way of moving from a literal to a theological understanding is one that is is deeply embedded in the Bible. Mm. Um, and I think is absolutely, it will be very hard for um, Western oriented Christians um, in North America, in Western Europe, Mm. maybe in Australia. Indeed, Australia, yes, as well. Mm. For Western-oriented Christians, it would be very hard for us to grow our theology to respond to this crisis if Mm. we do not listen to Christians in the majority world, mm. as I experienced it in East Africa, in South Africa, in Indonesia, um, uh, where there's still a largely 
rural population that cherishes indigenous mm-hmm. traditions, mm-hmm. even if they are hindered from practicing um, those traditions with increasing encroachments of industrial agriculture mm. um, and westernized theology. Mm. Mm. You know, in listening to this and, and hearing this perspective, I can't help but think of that part in Paul's letter to Rome in chapter 8 where he speaks about how creation is longing and waiting for the children of God. And I can't help but but think of that as I hear this of how creation itself is 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 waiting for us to take up our role of what it means to to be human in in a sense to be people who who tenderly and in humility take care of our world and and realize our relationship to to this living living thing the creation and the importance of that in that sense it would surprise me that people do tend to take a view that sometimes goes that this is an optional add-on to faith. And I've heard it before. I've heard people go, well, I'm not concerned about creation. And sometimes they come with a theology about, well, it's because it's about going to heaven. Of course, I would say it's, it's actually deeply important because Jesus' prayer is on earth as it is in heaven. And that is the, the end of scripture as well of, of heaven on earth. But it got me thinking about how some people can indeed take a, quote, take it or leave it approach to this topic. And so I'm wondering, uh, is looking after the land interwoven into our discipleship? And if so, how so? Um, it, I would say absolutely it is interwoven into our discipleship. Um, If one wants to begin um, from the scariest perspective, I think of uh, the um, Revelation chapter 11, Mm. uh, when the um, those beneath the throne of God say the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. Mm. Um, That's a fairly chilling perspective. Um, Mm. And um, from the prophetic book of Revelation, Mm. um, we are living in a time when we are seeing um, that those who destroy the earth are indeed um, experiencing terrible destruction. And of course, that is never on an, it, it's never on an individualized basis. Mm. Mm. Um, everyone suffers. Um, yes. and, um, and the book of Revelation is well aware of that. And the prophets through the whole Bible are well aware of that. Mm. Um, I would say that a very basic way of beginning to practice discipleship in this area is to listen to how we pray. Mm. Um, Give us this day our daily bread. Mm. Um, It's a prayer of sufficiency. That prayer takes us back in the Bible, give us this day our daily bread, is, of course, an echo of the manna story in Egypt Mm. or the manna story in the wilderness, Um, Exodus 16. It is the first account of Israel um, on the other side of the Reed Sea, the Red Sea as we call it in English, Um, And the very first thing the Israelites have to figure out, or no, the very first thing that they have to be obedient about Mm. is how they're going to eat. Mm. Um, And manna comes with two restrictions. Um, 
One is that everybody takes what they need for their household. Mm. Um, and it, um, and if you take more, it's not, it won't do you any good because it rots overnight. Mm. Uh, so no one can take an excess. And if someone doesn't get enough, it, um, it will, it suffices for the household anyway. Mm. Mm. Um, so it's an economy of sufficiency. It's also an economy that knows how to stop. Mm. Um, because there is no manna collection on Sabbath. The Israelites don't get that. They go out on the Sabbath to collect. There is no manna. God gets angry and says, how long are y'all going to refuse mm. Uh to keep my statutes and ordinance and commandments. Um, the rabbis extrapolate from that and say, um, Torah at Sinai, Israelites are on their way to Sinai at this point. It's mm. Exodus 16, they'll get to, to Sinai in chapter 19 of Exodus. Um, the rabbis teach that Torah was not given except to the eaters of manna, which is to say, if you couldn't get that, wow, couldn't get the, if you couldn't get stopping, then what are you going to do with the rest mm. of the commandments? And very relevant for us today, especially as we face the times we find ourselves in. What type of people are we going to be? What type of disciples are we going to be as it relates to our relationship with the land? Thank you so much, Professor Davis, today for, for speaking with me. My pleasure and privilege. Thank you, Nathan. Well, that was today's interview with Professor Ellen Davis. If you want to listen to her talk more about this topic, then I encourage you to search her name on YouTube and watch her lectures there. Also, her book, Scripture, Culture and Agriculture, an Agrarian Reading of the Bible, speaks a lot into today's topic. <laughs> 